Hello, welcome to the Revive for the Journey podcast, where we give you this week's message from Cove Church. We pray that it blesses you and helps you grow deeper in your journey with Christ. Enjoy. Well, hey there, Cove Church. It is so great to be together with you today. Uh, today is a, is a really great day because we, we just, you know, had a moment of worship in our online experience. Um, and today we actually get to talk about what that means. Uh, we get to uh, continue in our series called Begin. And today we talk about beginning in worship. Because what worship is and how we are to worship is among the great questions of the modern church era, isn't it? We ask, well, is worship supposed to be hymn books and liturgy? Or is worship supposed to be live bands and lights? Is worship supposed to be dancing and clapping and raising hands? Or is worship supposed to be sitting and folding and praying hands? Every church has its own lane. Every church has its own expression, its own style of worship. And it's a slippery slope to proclaim one style holier than another. And the temptation to do so usually has a lot more to do with personal opinions and personal preferences than it does with what God desires. Uh, for example, you won't see a lot of unregistered tambourines in the crowd at Cove Church, just out there amongst the people. You won't see that a whole lot. It's not because tambourines are necessarily evil, although they might be, I'm not sure. But it's because tambourines, by their nature, are so controlling. Maybe you've seen this happen. You can have an entire band up here, and you can have one sweet person in the crowd with a tambourine, and suddenly the band isn't leading worship anymore. That tambourine is. That's just how it works every time. It's like a kingdom coup. They just take over stuff. I don't know how it does it. It's a powerful force. So our greeters are trained to tackle any unregistered tambourine owner who walks into this place. Just know that. Just fair warning for all you tambourine people. Okay. But all of that is a preference thing, isn't it? And sometimes that's our entire understanding of worship that is just about my preference. See, worship is a term that is often used around church life, but it's also often not fully understood. We speak worship, but we're actually thinking preference. When people say, oh, I just really love the worship at that church, likely they are referring to the atmosphere or to the musicianship or to the song choice or to the style. It's a preference thing. So just because we speak of worship doesn't mean we necessarily understand worship. Because deep down, I think we all know it has to be about more than a church that sings our favorite songs. It has to be about more than cool lights and haze. It must be, at its most basic le level, it must be about God. Yet so often, like so many other things, we managed to make it about us. So once again, we need God's help. And in that, we're going to look at the book of Ephesians. And we're going to look at it through the lens of what our worship is supposed to be like. Uh, years ago, I was with a friend. And uh, this friend had traveled all over the world. He'd been in so many different places. He was just an adventurer by his nature. So he'd been all over the world. But he told me of all the places that I have been in the world, my favorite place in the entire planet is actually here in the United States. He said it's in the Colorado River around Grand Canyon. 
He said, of all the places I've, I've been, that is the most amazing place. He said, it is just a bastion of God's creativity. Now, I've ever been on this, but he would do a float two weeks on the Colorado River there at the Grand Canyon. And uh, they would raft in the morning. They would explore at night. They often didn't even use tents. They would just sleep on sandbars. And it was, it was two weeks of this. And they went in that process through 10 class five rapids on that journey. And he described it as God's fantasy land. <laughs> there would be the streams of runoff that would run through the minerals in the cliffs and it would produce colors that seemed like, like beyond belief, like neon colored streams coming out of the mountains. As though, it was as though God just decided to take all the governors off in terms of what's normal in terms of nature and just go for it, just go crazy. He said, it's the most beautiful place I've ever seen on the planet. And by the end of him describing that to me, you know what happened to me? I wanted to go. I wanted to experience that. And I still do because that, that description was also an invitation. This is what we get to do together at church regarding worship. We get to paint some pictures of God. We get to describe some things, all of it pointing to simply an invitation for us to come and to see for ourselves, to taste and see that the Lord is good. And worship is the act of actually taking that trip See, God's word is the map revealing who God is. Worship is the road trip that takes us to him. And if you decide to take that trip, to worship with your whole heart, to worship with your whole life, to discover God in new and personal and amazing ways, I want you to know there's a lot of folks, myself included, that would love to go with you on that journey. Whatever I've experienced in my life with Jesus so far, and there's been so many wondrous things. I also know it's just the tip of the iceberg. It's just the start. There's so much more, and he's inviting all of us to go there. He's inviting us all, all of us to go to this relationship where we actually see God for who God is. And there are some things in that that I want to point out from this passage in Ephesians that become the foundation for a life of worship. And here's the first thing. We worship in response to God's plan. We worship in response to God's plan. Ephesians 1 verse 11, let's read it where you are, big voices, go. In him we were also chosen having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. It's an amazing passage all about the plan of God. Identifying that, that we as people were not an afterthought with God. God had a purpose and a plan for us. That, that we are, are the forethought, we, we are made with a reason. We are the reason behind everything, that before all that God did, God saw you. Before everything that is, God saw you. We're told in Scripture that God chose us before the foundations of the world. Before light separated from darkness, before, before heaven separated from earth, before land separated from sea, 
God saw you and was consumed with one thought, how to make sure you would find wholeness and life in him. We are recipients of this astounding, planned love. God chose us in him, meaning God's perfect picture of us millennia before we were born was to be in Jesus. This is what parents do, right? This isn't so strange. This is what parents do all the time. They will prepare the nursery for that baby that's coming. It could be months away from delivery date, but they'll start to prepare the nursery. And so you'll have the soft, fluffy blankets in there and the diapers all set up and ready. And you'll have the crib all set. And you'll have, in some families, it's Oregon duck stuff everywhere. The baby's never seen a game, but boy, they're going to see them now. And so that baby's going to be a duck fan for sure. And then you'll see like tiny cowboy boots in some nurseries, you know, they're ready for their first ride, even as an infant. You'll see ballet shoes. The baby hasn't even walked, but the nutcracker awaits that child. And then you'll see for some, like accountant families, the parents will have the tiny little Fisher Price 10 key calculator. Isn't that cute? A little something for the baby. And then contractor parents will give the baby like tiny baby tool belts and maybe baby's first saber saw, fun stuff like that. And of course, your call center parents will give them baby aspirin. It's all there preparation for them to be a part of this family. We do this, why? We do all of this before they become, because we believe. Before that child finds their destiny, we have a dream for them. Now, our dream can be misguided. Our dream can be limited in its understanding of them. But at the core, this is what parents do. Before you were born, we see the best possible you. And after you were born, we desire nothing else but to see you become everything that God made you to be. Where does that desire come from? It comes from God. As this passage says, in him we were chosen according to God's plan. That's his purpose. He wanted us. He had a plan for us. If you can picture in heaven, God's giant refrigerator, all right? Trillions of items on it that are stuck on that fridge by magnets, okay? That's what I picture in heaven, a giant refrigerator, not just because of the food, but because of this. That from, from all, the beginning of your life, God starts to put up all your accomplishments on that refrigerator. Like from your, the drawing of a cow you made when you were four years old, that's up on God's fridge to that, that spiritual progress report when you were kind to that neighbor instead of cruel to that neighbor, so you got an A plus on that spiritual assignment, that's up on the fridge, to, to the snapshot of you taking the back seat on that road trip because you wanted to live as a servant, that picture's up on God's fridge. All those trophies of your life proudly displayed on God's fridge. And it's the same for us. It's the same for all 7 billion people on this planet, that God knows every dream and every thought, and he knows when hair number 7,568 falls to the ground. God made you, and he loves you that closely. And, and when we really get that, we can't help but worship. We can't help but know that this is part of why we're here. 
that from the beginning before anything else, God saw you and made you and knit you together. You were made for a purpose. And when we finally grasp that, we don't need instructions on how to worship because we're overwhelmed with gratitude that a love like that meets us. It's like when, when, when your, your, your sports team wins, you're watching a game and your sports team wins, no one has to say, okay, your team won, you should go like this and you should yell, yay! No one has to tell you that. It's the most natural thing in the world. We just do it. Your team wins, you go, yes, that's amazing. It's natural. We just do it. It's an unfiltered response to a great victory and a great truth. And worship is how we celebrate the greatest victory of all, that God's plan was always to love me and to make me win. And the truth that I experienced there leads me then to worship him in return. We worship in response to God's plan. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing. We worship in response to God's promise. Let's continue the passage, Ephesians 1:12. Big voices go. In order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Now the language here is, is challenging a little bit, but essentially it's saying that God's plan was that just as the life of Christ was directed at my life, given for my good, that my life would in turn be directed at Christ, given to Christ. That in doing so, I would not just declare praise, but that I would become praise. Saying in order that we might be for the praise of his glory, that my life is praise. Worship is our response to being rescued by God. A rescue that is made possible in Jesus. That is the gospel of our salvation, which means worship comes out of my life when I recognize God's hand in my life. We have been ransomed with the highest price. We have been given an amazing gift, a promised hope. And this passage reminds us of that hope. When you think about, um, like when people win uh, uh, sweepstakes, like publishers clearing house sweepstakes, and when you see those things, and, and the prize patrol shows up on their lawn, and there's you know, balloons, and there's cameras, and there's like a giant cardboard check, and they show up at their door, right? We've all seen things like that. When you think about what are they really being handed? They're not really being handed money. You can't cash that giant check. It's for show, right? They're, they're, they're actually being handed at that moment a promise. Yet how do they respond? Well, this is amazing. And they're crying and they're calling their sister and they're quitting their job. It all happens right there in that moment. Their bank account hasn't changed. Their address hasn't changed. All that has changed is that they've been given a promise. Yet they celebrate like they've never celebrated before because they believe in the validity of that promise to them. They place their hope in what they've been promised. If they can celebrate 
a promise on a big check and balloons. Why can't we celebrate a promise far more trustworthy, far more valuable, far more lasting? That the hope I place in Christ leads to my salvation, and that salvation leads me to praise. That's why worship and must have this element of praise that, that we who were first to hope in Christ might be the praise of his glory, as the passage says. It's not just that we sing praise, we are praise. That because we've been given so many promises by the one who never breaks a promise, that each of us, we have something amazing to celebrate. I don't know if you've ever been to a, a teen challenge graduation, you know, folks coming out of recovery. And uh, they've been through this program, and when they graduate, it's usually nine months to a year that the process takes them. But, but before that, just a year ago, they were often in really difficult circumstances, sometimes coming out of prison, sometimes coming out of just, just horrible circumstances. And so in that process, they're introduced to Jesus, and many, many give their lives to Jesus. And so they know that they were saved from drowning. Right? They know when they, when they graduate that, that one year ago I was drowning. And so it's so fresh for them. It's like the towel's still wet. We just saved you from drowning and the towel is still wet that we dried you off with. It's so fresh. And so they're so excited about Jesus and no one has to remind them to be excited. That, that God's deliverance is so obvious to them. They know they've been rescued. Praise for them is just a default. It just flows out of them. Because those who have been forgiven much, they, they love much, so we're told. But what's strange is you can get a few years down the road and it might not be quite the same. The rescue isn't as fresh. And, and that hope is still nice, but, but it doesn't quite feel as necessary. And we lose sight of the fact for all of us, whether we have recovery in our past or not, we lose sight of the fact that all of us have been forgiven so much. So why don't we love much? And so in worship, we get back to that truth. We have been delivered. We are being delivered. And we will be delivered by Jesus and our praise is propelled by an understanding of that promise. Every day, for those who know Jesus, we have something to cheer about, to freak out about. Every day, it's basically we have won the Super Bowl and we're going to Disneyland and Elon Musk is gonna drive us there in his Tesla. That's the kind of day every day can be. That God has made eternity possible, redemption possible, that God provided a way out and a way up. So how can I not worship? How can I not be excited? 
How can I not dance and shout and sing? Psalm 95 is such a great prescription for our response. It says, come let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Worship is the only appropriate response to God's gift of salvation. And I love here that it includes this decision to sing <laughs> and to shout. That includes music and song, to bow down and to kneel. It's this whole person expression that really has nothing to do with my personality or my ability. And it has everything to do with my choice. To actually tell my body to express what my spirit knows to be true. And to do so even in music and song. I love the fact that, that from before the foundations of the earth, words alone were not enough to describe who God is. So what does God do? God creates music. A common language that crosses every culture. Every, every culture is, can understand the music of another culture. A language that can express the wonder of who God is. And you know exactly what I mean if that piece of music has in your life carried you away. Some of you know what it's been like to just be carried away by that piece of music. And for some people, it was that, that classical piece that carried you away. And for another, it was that funk song that carried you away. And another, it was rock. And another, it was heavy metal, maybe even country. I'm not sure. I suppose it's possible. Uh, <laughs> but these things, these times when the music just took us someplace, times when the music says so much more, than words alone ever could. It moves us. Music is this, this other paintbrush to let us see that much more of who God is. It's the sound of heaven. In music and song, God has given us an entire language to ascribe glory to him. Yet what do we do? We say, eh, I'm not really a singer. Ah, music, not really my thing. And we're missing this fact. Worship has nothing to do with who I am and everything to do with who God is. It's not about me. Exuberance and song is a reflection of his goodness and must therefore be included in our worship. Jesus told us that he can make worshipers out of rocks if he wanted to. But should he have to? He has us. For those who have experienced the love of God, worship should be like breathing. So all of us, we get to learn to breathe again. We worship in response to God's promise. That's the second thing. Here's the last thing. We worship in response to God's presence. Ephesians 1, 13 to 14, big voices go. 
When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. It's saying that, that in this life, even though our world is broken and so much around us and in us is not as it should be, it's saying God has given us a deposit, a glimpse guaranteeing our future hope in him. And that deposit is God's Holy Spirit. That when I forget what God looks like and when I forget what God sounds like, and I forget how God speaks to me, God's Holy Spirit brings me back to the truth. You know, a few weeks ago in my house, we were going through some old things and I ran across a CD of my dad's music, a bunch of recordings that he had made with different friends. And uh, so the only CD player I have is in my car. And so I put the CD in my car and uh, on one song, I remember he was speaking before he played this song. And it was so good to hear his voice. And I, in that moment, I was reminded of all that he was. I was reminded of how he thought. I was reminded of how he related to people. And I was reminded that I would hear that voice again one day. That there is a promise that in Jesus, I will see him again. This is what God's Holy Spirit does so well in worship we're reminded of what God sounds like, of how God relates to us, how God speaks to us. The Holy Spirit will always reveal who God is because the Holy Spirit is God. As Jesus said in Matthew 18, where two or three gather in my name, I am there with them. How is that possible? It's possible through the Holy Spirit. God is here, present in worship. God is present when we're here together in his name. That's why it means so much when we gather together and proclaim who God is, because God shows up. That's why so many of us, we come to a place like a church and, and we, we have tears amidst worship and we have joy amidst worship and we have this sense of being swept up into something bigger, something greater than us. That's God's presence. Now, the question is, is it always like that every time you go to church? No, no, it's not. not that's not because God changes, it's because we do, right? Sometimes I'm just not in the right place. Sometimes I'm in a bad mood when I come to church. Sometimes I'm worried or I'm off my game or I'm off my meds. There's so many things that could be affecting that. I can easily miss what God is doing because my feelings are flawed. And so I can easily get swept up into emotionalism or I can get paralyzed by insecurity. Both extremes are possible. But again, that is about my weakness. And remember, worship has nothing to do with me. It's about acknowledging the truth of who God is. It's like when a judge enters the chambers in a courtroom, the bailiff will say, I'll rise because this judge has entered. We rise because of who has entered the room. Well, when we gather in Christ's name, Jesus enters the room, so we rise in worship. Because if Jesus promises to be here, then he's here. 
and is therefore then worthy of all my praise. And the amazing thing is this, that even in my weakness, I can still experience the presence of God in worship. That he's that good, that he reaches across my brokenness, that I can even get over myself and I can choose to worship him with song and music. I can stand or I can clap or I can kneel because he is worthy of it all. He's worthy of everything I can give him. See, in the Holy Spirit, God has made himself present. It is then up to us to give God praise. We worship in response to God's presence. I'll wrap up with this. Um, I remember a few years ago when I went to London, uh, we went to uh, St. Paul's Cathedral in London. There's a picture of it that you'll see. It's a famous landmark, the spires, the dome. It towers some 365 feet amidst the London skyline. It's an incredible structure. It, it, it took a decade to design and 40 years to build. The amount of labor that went into it is just overwhelming. And when you're there, the sense of awe is tangible. And yet I also know this. To God, it's a dollhouse. <laughs> Isaiah says the earth is God's footstool. I want to understand that in worship that God can be so vast and at the same time so near. I, I want to get close to understand that because I, I have a feeling if we really understand who God is, if we really understand the fullness of the Almighty that we are encountering in worship, but also understand the depth of the love that he's offering to us, I, I don't think we could help but praise him. I don't think we could do anything else. And when I think about the, the book of Revelation and, and what it ultimately describes all of us to look like in God's kingdom, that there will be this day when every nation and tongue and tribe declares God's praise in one voice. It makes me go, I think that's what God's church should look like. That's what we get to build together, that we are so caught up in seeing God that we don't even see the differences in each other anymore. Doesn't the world need that? That's what God wants for us. That's our invitation. We worship because of God's plan and because of God's promise. And ultimately, we experience God's presence. God's Holy Spirit is here. God's Holy Spirit is where you are, where, where you've gathered, where two or more gather in his name. He's there with you. And in that, God is offering a complete love. Will we offer ours in return? Not just to sing songs of worship, but with that and every other expression possible that we would offer a life of worship to our King. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. 
To stay connected with all things Cove Church, visit our website, covechurchpnw.com, or on all social media platforms at Cove Church PNW. We'll see you next time.